I wonder why you're here. So why did you come this morning? Because you always do? Because it's Easter? Why did you come? What do you expect? What do you expect for yourself? What do you expect of me? What do you expect of this sermon? What about the people around you? You know, the 19th century poet and and playwright from Ireland, Oscar Wilde, he rightly said, a thing is not necessarily true because a man dies for it. Just as you can live for a lie, you can die for one. But how do you know? What brought you here this morning? The death and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is at the very heart of the Christian faith. No resurrection, no salvation, no resurrection, no hope. It's a world of privatized truth. It's your truth. It works for you. It's never more than your truth. The resurrection of Jesus makes a claim on the world, on the future of the world, on the expectations of the world, on your life. It's not just helpful, it's authoritative. What if, what if in this world, someone has gone into death and come back out? How would that change this morning? How would that change tomorrow morning? How would that change next Sunday morning and every morning after that? Physical, bodily resurrection. Do you expect that? What difference would it make to you if you did? What if all that is sad really will come untrue? What if real life will far exceed anything you've ever read, even in the best fairy tale? We want that. Are we fools to expect that? To think about that, we look at John 11 this morning. John chapter 11, it's a passage in which Jesus exceeds. He upends even the greatest expectations. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He's done many signs. This is the sign that exceeds them all. In this world of death, Jesus brings about a resurrection. And that should change everything. 
that you expect for your own life. So we're in John 11, and we're going to look at the first 44 verses of this chapter. Here's what I want you to see as we work through it. Jesus resurrects the dead to life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus resurrects the dead to life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This passage, this historic event, is meant to reveal to you God's glory in Jesus Christ. And this text today is all about glory. So it's glory that will define our points as we work through it. Let's begin by seeing glory delayed. Glory delayed. That's the first point. And we'll look at the first 16 verses. Glory delayed. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So their sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus has purposely left Jerusalem where he had done signs and he had declared who he is. So when we come to this chapter, Jesus is nowhere to be found. We meet Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Which Lazarus? The brother of Mary who anointed Jesus with ointment. Now, John has not recounted this event to us. It was known. He assumes his readers are familiar with it. 
He's saying it's that Lazarus who was sick. John is specific about which Lazarus he's referring to. Why? Well, given what he's about to claim, credibility matters. It's Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. One of the ways that the scriptures take you very seriously is that the scriptures never present to you faith being something that's a leap from reason. Because the scriptures know you will place your faith in whatever you think is reasonable. And so here, John's aim in this whole book is that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he does not want you to doubt the credibility of this historical event. He's saying, there's eyewitness testimony, that the faith is tied to real historic events like this one. And he wants for you, if you're a Christian, this to strengthen your faith. He wants for you, if you're not a Christian, to ask yourself about whatever it is that your faith is resting on. Is your faith for the future rooted in what is historic? You're staking a lot eternity on whatever it is that your faith rests. And it's good. It's right for you to ask questions about that. John is saying, because Jesus says, faith in Jesus is the most reasonable place to put your faith. Lazarus is ill, so they send for Jesus. We know nothing about this relationship. If you're like me, you want to know more. Jesus loved Lazarus. Lazarus was his friend. I mean, what would it have been like to be one of Jesus's friends? He has all this authority. He's a public man. He has deep friendships. You, you, you see his humanity all over this account. The real people whose lives, his life was intertwined with. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. He knows them. And he also knows when he hears about his sickness, where this sickness is headed. Verse four is not so much his sickness leads to death as it is. It doesn't just lead to death, but it's also and ultimately leading to God's glory. Of course, Lazarus dies. Jesus makes that very clear. But this sickness has a greater purpose for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So God will reveal his glory in this by glorifying his Son. That's the ultimate reason Jesus delayed. He stayed two days longer when he heard that Lazarus, his friend, was sick last few weeks, I saw some videos that some dads that I know had posted of their sons, posted publicly. Uh, one of them had done really well in a football match, and one of them hit a home run in a baseball game. 
Why did they do that? Because these dads felt joy and pride in showing off the accomplishments of their son to whoever would watch. It gave them joy. It made them proud. They, they're saying to anyone who sees it, look at my son. Look at what he's done. There's a glory to that. We understand it. Jesus is saying that God's glory is going to be revealed through this as his son is glorified through what he's about to do. Glory is what this account is all about. God the Father's revelation of his own glory as he shows to the world the glory of his son. So notice this logic. The the glory of the Father is not at odds with the glory of the Son. It's tied to it. Jesus made this clear in John 5 that the goal is that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So God gets glory as we see the beauty and the greatness and the godness of God's Son. Lazarus' sickness leads to physical death, all of it planned for glory because God wants the world to see the glory of his son. Now, this means that your own heart, your soul, you were made for glory. That right now in your own life, your soul is captured by stuff that you delight in. That no one forces you to delight in or to value. You just delight in it. That's the way glory works. So there were things this past week you got excited about. They gave you joy. No one forced you. It wasn't by duty. You're affectionate for that. That's the way we were made to know and delight in the glory of God. Jesus delays seeing Lazarus so that human beings would delight, see the glory of God's son. It's in his love that Jesus means to interrupt you in your lesser glories. Just as he's going to go to Lazarus and wake him up, he means to wake you up from deadly glory. We're so dazzled by, we're impressed with, we boast in, we live for glories that are infinitely less than our hearts were made for. We are, as C.S. Lewis so rightly said, half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so Jesus waits. Think about that. His friend is sick and he waited. Did his waiting make sense to anyone? No. Was his waiting good? Yes. His wisdom was best seen after the time. Jesus doesn't work on our timetable. He works on his. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know how perplexing the ways and the the timing of God can be. 
But in the end, wouldn't Lazarus, wouldn't his sisters, wouldn't many others see his wisdom? Won't you? I mean, maybe right now as you sit there, you are urging Jesus, work now. And from your limited vantage point, it appears he's inactive. And yet he's intentionally active, working for a later and a better time. You're in the middle. You're not at the end of the story. Jesus is working only as he sees the Father working. And for his people, that always means he will only do the most good. He was, he is, he always is actively working. And it means that as you wait, actively trust him. His disciples protest, don't go. In that region, Jesus had just been almost stoned. It was to Judea. It's a several day journey into Bethany. And it's into that, in response to that protest that he asked in verse nine, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the days, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because in the, the light is not in him. Okay, in the literal sense, that's true. They, they worked all day and then they would stop working at night. But for Jesus, walking in the day is to walk in spiritual light. It's to walk seeing the light of the world and to be in spiritual darkness is to walk at night apart from Jesus, who is the light. You remember Nicodemus. When did he come to Jesus? Came at night. And what did he not understand? What Jesus meant when he said to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. And how did he leave Jesus? He went back out in the darkness, a man in spiritual darkness. Jesus delays so that his disciples will not be in the darkness. His hour has not come. And to walk in the light means he goes to Judea, no matter the danger, no matter the cost. And it's then, verse 11, probably by supernatural knowledge, he declares, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Just as Mark taught in Daniel 12 this morning, falling asleep in other places in the Old Testament as well, was a way of referring to death. And unsurprising, Jesus' disciples misunderstand him again. Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. But he's glad he delayed because for his sake, he wants them to believe. So he says, let us go to him. What's he doing? He's going to his friend in his death. He's putting himself in danger to do so. And he will wake his friend up. Jesus is a man who at every moment is concerned for others. Even when it means cost to himself. Actions speak louder than words, but how loud are your actions when they verify the words that you've spoken? Jesus' love for his friends is proven by the journey he makes. What didn't make sense to them immediately would make sense eventually. Jesus is willing to go to death to bring about resurrection. And Jesus hasn't changed. His disciples thought he would die. 
Thomas, embedded in history as doubting Thomas, is the one who shows the courage. Let us also go that we may die with him. He speaks better than he knows. He speaks better than he and the other disciples will do. He loves Jesus. He has tremendous zeal, but he has great need for understanding. There is no dying with Jesus. When the hour comes, his death will be a wholly unique one. One that we cannot repeat. He must suffer alone. Jesus aims to be glorified. And so then, as he's done in his death, he delays. Glory delayed. Leads to glory declared. Glory declared. That's the second thing we see in this passage. Glory declared. Look down at verse 17. We'll go to 27. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Martha remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. His delay led to Lazarus's death, dead for four days. Quite a lot of Jews had made this trip three kilometers from Jerusalem out to Bethany. Most likely Mary and Martha were prominent, known. Martha goes out to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She knows he has authority. She loves him. She trusts him. Even though she's like the disciple, she, she misunderstands him. She can't make sense of what he's going to do. It's in her misunderstanding. She believes if, if only you had worked on a different timetable, my brother would be alive. What do you misunderstand about Jesus? You, you realize in her questioning, in her misunderstanding, she's Seeking to make Jesus understand what she thinks he doesn't. Now, you know you do this. I do it. Now, we think he got something wrong. He's getting this wrong in my life right now. And like Martha, all you see is death. And you cannot fathom that the way he's working is moving everything to resurrection. Only Jesus does this. He takes his people to the depths 
so that he can display resurrection power and bring us out. We are Christians should never be flippant about the times, but we should never be frantic about them either. We know the God who delays to bring about resurrection and delights to do so. What is it in your life right now that you must trust him with when you so badly want to say, Lord, if you had only. Could it be that you don't see the whole picture? Could it be that on the other side of this is something more glorious than your feeble mind can fathom? Could it be that whatever is sad because of the resurrection will be made beautiful? That what confuses you is going to be clarified? That you will see Jesus did get it right? I mean, for his part, Jesus has put his life at risk to go to that tomb. He doesn't scold Martha. He's not angry. He doesn't put her off. He simply says to her, your brother will rise again. Now he's clearly ambiguous. He knows what he's saying. Martha doesn't. She like so many thinks that Lazarus is going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So clearly, as Mark has been teaching for the last two weeks from the scriptures, the Old Testament, Daniel 12, at the end of history, there was an expectation of a coming physical bodily resurrection. But what if the end came into the middle? Christ comes into the present. What if it's in the middle of history that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Notice this, it's in the midst of death that Jesus declares his glory. It's another I am statement in John, another claim to deity. And what's remarkable to me, you're probably familiar with this declaration, it was not in public. He simply told it to his friend. It's so personal. In the midst of her grief and tears, he reveals himself to her. I'm not going to cause resurrection, though he's saying that. He says in him is resurrection and life. Resurrection and life so embodied, so intertwined in Jesus, they come exclusively from, exclusively in Jesus. Massive universe that we live in. And yet Jesus is saying at its very basic level, it's so very personal. Because life is not a force. It's not something abstract. Life is a person. There's no escaping that life is in Jesus. Jesus gives life. If you're a Christian, that's, that's comfort to you. You know the one who is life, who will not let you go. If you're not a Christian, that's the nagging reality that haunts you that you try to suppress and ignore, but it just won't go away. 
the sense of this is believing into, living into Jesus. He's speaking in such a vital connection with him, his person, that person that the destiny of those bound up to him will be to rise and to go where he goes. Life that triumphs over death comes only through Jesus. In a world that largely ignores death, that does all that it can to not think about death, that just so easily uses platitudes like he's in a better place now, Jesus is very specific. Being in him means there's life in death. Life, not just that the world cannot take away, but that death cannot touch. On the playground, when I was a kid, we played a game called Red Rover. Who's here heard of Red Rover? About what I thought. I'll explain it to you. So all of these kids would line up on one side of the playground, and we would all lock our hands together like this. And on the other side of the playground was another group of kids who locked their hands together. And you would stand in a line, and one side would say to the other side, Red Rover, Red Rover. And we would say the name of someone on the other side, send Josh right over. And at that point, Josh or whatever, whoever was called, would run as fast as they possibly could to break the chain, to break the link of the hands. So when they went, our team's fate was dependent on their strength to get through the hands of the other team. Our destiny tied up with their destiny. And if they could break through the hands on the other side, they, they, would, they would win. We could take people back with us. But if not, they were captured and they locked hands with the other side. That's what death has been for centuries. It's called name after name. And it said, send that person right over. And every person who has gone into death has gone in has never come back. No one has broken through. And here, if Jesus is what he's saying is being true about him being the resurrection and the life, he's saying he can go over and he can come back. And maybe people can come back with him, but death will go with him. This is resurrection teaching even before there's a resurrection. Here's Jesus calling his shot declaring his glory. Here's Jesus saying, there's no neutrality. And so he declares this and he turns to Martha and he says to her, do you believe this? It's one thing for her to be fascinated. It's, it's one thing for her to be comforted by him, enthralled with him. It's a whole nother thing for her to personally believe in him. He reveals himself. He demands a response and she gives one. Whatever she thought, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Do you remember last week we were in chapter 10 and the major contention was that the Jewish leaders did not like the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Christ. They considered it blasphemy that he said he was the Son of God. Do you know why John wrote this whole gospel? That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God. And here in the middle, Martha believes and she confesses. We're meant to model her faith. Jesus 
is the resurrection and the life because Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Do you believe this? The revelation and declaration of his glory is the surest place for your faith. Like this woman, like the Samaritan woman, you are meant to believe and confess him. Jesus declares his glory and Martha perceives it. But he declares his glory because in this world, his glory has been defamed. That's our third point. Glory defamed. Glory defamed. Verses 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's a funeral scene. It's all covered with weeping and death. It's the reality of this fallen world. It's not the reality we were made for. This is the world into which Jesus came. The glory of life, defamed, dishonored by death. You're so familiar with this scene that it does not shock you. And it should The evidence that this is a fallen world is seen in the fact that death is expected. It's resurrection that is explained away, not believed. It's in her tears that Mary makes the same confession as Martha. If you'd been here, you wouldn't have died. She wept. The Jews with her wept. Jesus worked to bring every one of their lives, all of them to this moment of death and weeping everywhere. Uh, This would have been a scene of loud weeping, overwhelming sounds. And it says, Jesus is seeing this, surrounded by this. He is moved in his spirit, not just moved, troubled. That is more than just being sad. Jesus is angry. What's he angry about? Sin and death? Havoc, it's wreaked, it's brought about in God's good world. Sin that has defamed the glory of God. Human beings made to live forever, reflecting the glory of God, made in God's image, subjected to, under the power of, destined for death. In a world of tears and death, God's glory has been defamed. And here's Jesus 
He sees the reality of this world created through him, for him, by him. And he's angry. He's righteously angry. What makes you angry? You can tell a lot about what you value, what you love, what you glory in by whatever it is that makes you angry. Does your anger revolve around what offends you or what offends God? Jesus was righteously angered by what sin had done to his world. What makes you angry reveals what you really love. There is unrighteous anger, but there is righteous anger. In the midst of righteous anger, what does Jesus do? He wants to know where his friend is laid. It's there we read, Jesus wept. Real tears. Does Jesus know where this is headed? Of course he does. And yet he cries. Grief matters. Death is not natural. Death is the enemy. The enemy that has called human beings over again and again and again. Whose shackles no one has been able to break. Jesus saw his friend. He saw his people shackled in death. And he wept. Grief and anger. Is it right to celebrate someone's life when they die? Of course it is. But don't minimize, don't diminish the horror, the unnaturalness of death. We as Christians do not, of all people, have to overlook the fact that death is the enemy. It's a teacher. It teaches you about what is coming. It teaches you order your life in view of the fact that death is certain. And in death, weep. We know funerals are not the way the world was meant to be. Christians are not to grieve as those who have no hope, but Christians do grieve. Jesus wept. He was angry. One teacher writes, grief and compassion without outrage shrink to mere sentiment. While outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous, hot-tempered arrogance. They saw his grief. He saw what sin and death had done to the world to defame God and the glory of man. I don't think they understood the complexity of his tears, the hopefulness of Jesus's tears, that into this world of death, Jesus was going to bring resurrection. And that is exactly what he does. And all this death and weeping, Jesus is intent to display his glory. And that's how this ends. Glory displayed. Glory displayed. Look at verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I 
thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet unbound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It is so strange, and yet it is the way of Jesus that it's at a tomb in the midst of death. He clearly displays his glory. He's journeyed in danger, come to this point, a stone laid against the tomb. This man is dead. The odor The stench of death is their only expectation. Hopelessness reigns at that tomb. The last thing on any of their minds, resurrection. And yet again, in the midst of a great crowd, Jesus is so personal with Martha. In her ignorance, he meets her. In her despair, he meets her. This is the grace of Jesus. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? She couldn't fathom Jesus meant to do something so good, so glorious. Jesus delights. He will show his people glorious goodness on a level we cannot fathom. What he wanted for his disciples, for his friends, is no different from today. In this age, so marked by death, weeping, God's glory may be delayed. It's certainly been defamed. It will be displayed visibly, surprisingly, publicly. He's already prayed to the Father, and so out loud, he thanks the Father that he's heard him. He prays for their benefit, for their sake, that they would believe. And it's only after that that he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine the silence? The tension. Could have cut it with a knife. The stone is already rolled away. What will happen? Can a man who has gone into death come back into life? It was as close to the new creation as this old creation has ever come. It was as close to the old creation as creation had ever come. That the one through whom and by whom and for whom all things were created. The the one who was the word who spoke creation into existence called Lazarus out of the tomb. Was the word of Christ or the death of Lazarus more powerful? And not even death could resist that voice because nothing in the universe is more powerful than the word of Christ. His word raises the dead. 
His word gives life to dead hearts. By his spirit, he says, come out. He went after his friend, Lazarus. He called him out of death. And this is what he does for every sinner he calls. Do you hear his voice personally? As you hear of his person, as you hear of his work, who did not just go through danger to Lazarus's death, he went straight into danger to go to his own, to be crucified, to take wrath he never deserved on himself from sinners who had defamed his glory so that he might be rendered without glory on the cross. The one who would raise Lazarus from the dead himself would be raised. He's the only one, unlike Lazarus, who goes into death and he comes back out and he's alive forever. The resurrection and the life, whatever lesser glories or joys that you live for, know the joy of turning from them and coming to Jesus by faith. He calls you to come out to his glory. Glory was displayed at that tomb that day. The man who died came out, bound with the clothes of death, freed from the shackles of death. It's fascinating to me that John doesn't tell us anything that Lazarus said. We know nothing of his reaction because it's not the point. Point is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus has the authority to raise the dead. Friends, on this Easter Sunday, what was true for Lazarus was true for Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion, his death, did not lead to death. It was for the glory of God, so that the Son of God would be glorified through it. As Lazarus died, Jesus died. But as the only one who went into the grave, not having fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus was raised to glory. Do you believe this? What did Jesus say about Lazarus's sickness when he learned about it? He said it was for the glory of God, that they might see his own glory. And what has happened? Mary and Martha believe. If you look down to verse 45, many of the Jews believed only with Jesus does death lead to glory. Lazarus's death and resurrection points forward to Jesus's death and resurrection. It points forward to your death and resurrection. The resurrection means that there is a great reversal coming in this world. One of my historical heroes, J.C. Ryle, said there is a resurrection after death. The life we live in the flesh is not all. The visible world is not the only world with which we have to do. All is not over when the last breath is drawn. The trumpet shall one day sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. What did you expect this morning? What do you expect for the future? Does your life genuinely demonstrate that you expect nothing less than resurrection? When Jesus, the world over, calls his people by name to come out.
while death is a present reality, because of the resurrection of Jesus, it will not have the last word. Because of his resurrection in history, attested by eyewitnesses, there will be a day when not just one, but countless graves and tombstones will be opened. Oscar Wilde was right. A thing is not necessarily true because a man dies for it. But if a man is raised from the dead, that changes everything. Your life, your expectations, your present, and your eternal future. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen.